All right, Mark chapter 10. Here at Meadowbrook Church, we are helping people take their next steps with Jesus. And so wherever you're at in the spiritual journey, we are wanting to help you take your next steps. So whether you've walked with Jesus for a long time, whether you're newer to this journey, whether you're not even sure maybe about Jesus and you're just here checking things out, if you're watching online and just kind of investigating, uh, wherever you're at, we want to help you take whatever that next step is. And we focus on that primarily in three ways, upwardly, inwardly, and outwardly. So we want to take our next steps upwardly in our our connection and our communion with God inwardly as he does his work in us to transform us, to make us more like Jesus, and outwardly as we live out that faith and how we engage with other people in the world around us. We want to be moving forward in all of these areas. So we've been in a series the last number of weeks called Jesus and the Sinners. Um, I don't know where you're at in it. I am learning a lot as we go through this, and I, I always try to go in with a freshness and, and Lord, speak whatever you want to speak. I always love, I always say on a Sunday morning, like, you are just learning what God's been dealing with me on on Tuesday as I was getting ready. And so as we've been looking at this, we've been trying to just highlight a number of stories in the Gospels where Jesus engages people in their sin. And we want to look at what does that mean and what does that teach us about Jesus? What does that teach us about our sin? And what does that teach us about when we see other people in sin? And how do we engage with other people the way that Jesus did in a way that's faithful? So there are five key ideas that we've been coming back to over and over in the series. I'll just recap them quickly here. Number one, Jesus calls us to follow him and his ways. That if we're going to call ourselves Christ followers, 1 John 2, 6 says we actually have to follow Christ. We have to, to follow his example. And so that is what we are seeking to do. So it becomes very important as we answer the question, how did Jesus live? Because we are to live the way Jesus lived when he walked to the earth. Jesus' engagement with sinners makes some religious people uncomfortable. There were people who thought Jesus was soft on sin. They thought he was too friendly with sinners. They thought he was not being hard enough on them. That wasn't true, of course, but that is some of the reputation that he got. And it turns out he was actually okay with that. He was at peace with that because he wanted to meet people where they were at. Jesus calls sin what it is and calls us away from it. So he's not soft on sin. Jesus actually is, is very honest and at times very blunt about what sin is. And he calls us to a better way. He calls us to his way, which is a better way. We believe that the things that the Bible says are sinful are there and God puts boundaries around certain behaviors because those things are bad for us. And because those things are bad for us, God calls us to a better way. And and so Jesus is very blunt sometimes and very clear about what sin is. And then he calls us to a better way, to a higher way. Jesus is both holy and merciful without compromising either. And so he is very, very clear in, in who he is as God in the flesh, that he is perfectly holy. He is perfect in his actions. He is perfect in his words. And he calls us to that path. And at the same time is also the most loving and gracious and compassionate person who ever lived and somehow manages to hold those two things together. Uh, he is both holy and merciful. And then finally, Jesus meets people exactly where they are. He doesn't typically want them to stay where they are. He wants them taking their next steps and moving forward, but he meets people where they are at. He doesn't say, hey, you got to jump through a whole bunch of hoops or make a whole bunch of changes before I'll talk to you. He meets them right where they're at uh, and then engages with them exactly where they're at and then calls them to follow after him. There is a verse that I've, or a, not a verse, a quote uh, that I've brought up several times. I'll keep bringing it up because I love it so much. From Philip Yancey, Christians get very angry toward other Christians who sin differently than they do. 
And I'm just going to keep saying that because I think we need to hear that over and over and over again. That it's very, very easy for us to pass judgment on people who struggle with things that we don't struggle with. And in our own struggles, we're very, very good at giving ourselves a pass. We're very, very good at giving an explanation, and we're very, very good at just kind of, you know, we don't love that we do those things, but there are reasons, and we're struggling, and that's okay. But when that person's struggling with something different, we can get angry at that one. Jesus calls us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 to not obsess over the speck of dust in your brother's eye when you've got a plank in your own. And that doesn't mean that we don't call sin, sin, but it spurs us on to compassion that we're all struggling with something. We all have stuff in our lives that we're working on. We all have sin in in there that isn't great. And that should spur us on towards compassion when we see sin in other people. And the call from Jesus is, hey, remember when you see that in that other person that you've got your own stuff, even if it's different, and that should spur you on towards love and support and compassion as we seek to get out of all of our sin and then clean out all of our eyes. So as we get going today, I went to the dentist a couple weeks ago. Full disclosure, I hadn't been to the dentist in a while. And I was a little bit nervous about going, and I I take good care of my teeth. And and I had a lot of dental work when I was younger, a lot of orthodontic work. Uh, That's why I look so fantastic. And when I moved out of the house, one of the many wonderful pieces of advice that my father gave to me as I was leaving the house was, Chris, we paid a lot of money for that smile. You better take care of it. And so I was a little nervous going to the dentist, but I, I do take good care of my teeth. And so um, I went in, and the checkup happens, and uh, my hygienist wasn't really saying anything as she was doing all the cleaning. And I was like, so how's it looking? And she's like, well, the dentist will come talk to you. And I go, oh, that doesn't sound great. <laughs> and our dentist, we go see a dentist in, uh, in Essex named Dr. Pullman. And we really like him. He's a very laid-back guy, uh, very friendly, and very, very good, and very, very precise. But he's just very calm, and that's, that, you want that in your dentist. You don't want someone who's super uptight. And so he comes in very kind of laid-back, and he's in a T-shirt. He goes, hey, Chris, it's been a while. I'm like, yeah, I know. And so, uh, so he goes in there, and he, you know, the hygienist has done all the work and has made it look as good as it can look. And as he goes in there, he's got his mirror, and he just goes, excellent, 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 excellent good job, Chris, I'm proud of you. And then he got up and he left. Keep up the good work. And I went, my dentist is proud of me. (laughs) So not to brag, but no cavities, guys. Woo! And then I texted my wife. I said, no cavities. And Dr. Pullman said he was proud of me. And I said that multiple times that evening. (laughs) Over and over again. And at one point, Sarah said to me, babe, you forgot to do this. And I went, well, Dr. Pullman's proud of me. So it was a card I could play over and over and over again. So there's an encouragement and a pride that is okay, right? Like when we're encouraging one another, when we're cheering one another on, uh, when we've done a job well and, and we've accomplished something in life, it's okay to say, hey, that, that was good. That was well done. That was, that was uh, an accomplishment, Uh, When we do it for other people, that's a great place that Scripture calls us to encourage one another, right? To say, you did a great job, and I'm standing with you, and and you're on a good path, and you're choosing a good way. Like, that's all good stuff. So there is is kind of a a lighthearted, supportive, encouraging form of pride uh, that can be okay. But when it comes to pride in general, Scripture warns us about it a lot. That there's a lot about pride in general, 
that is actually very dangerous for us if we're not careful. It is dangerous to, to our souls, and it can get in the way of a lot of things. And so um, as we talk about pride today, we had to do at least one sermon on pride in the sermon series on Jesus and the sinners, because I think pride is the universal sin, and it often gets called that. It is, it is everywhere. And if you think you don't have pride in your life, that is very prideful of you. There you go. Conviction right there. And so as we talk about pride, the other thing that happens, here's something I like about being a preacher. Sometimes I'll be making a point and I see spouses like hit each other. Like, huh, huh, huh? Did you hear? It's very easy when we're talking about sin to make it about someone else's sin. It's very easy when we're talking about here's something we need to work on to sit there and go like, yeah, I know someone who definitely needs to work on that. But that's not the point of these messages. The point of these messages is for you to hear this for you. Because it's the most natural thing in the world to deflect. But when we're deflecting and pushing it off on other people, then we're not hearing what the Spirit is saying to ourselves. So everybody repeat this after me. This is for me. So don't get distracted by what your spouse needs to hear or what your kids need to hear or what your coworker needs to hear. This is for all of us to hear for ourselves today. So let's jump into our text. We're in Mark chapter 10, and we're starting in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten, the other disciples, heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So as he so often does, Jesus just turns everything upside down. He turns everything upside down. Just our natural way of thinking, the natural way the world works. Jesus comes with such a different, uh, fresh, incredible, challenging perspective of the way things are supposed to be. One of the other verses we've been leaning on in this series comes to us from John 1.14. Talking about Jesus, John says, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. That Jesus came down from heaven full of grace and full of truth. Not one or the other, not emphasizing one over the other. He came full of grace and full of truth. And my theory, which I think is an accurate one, is that most of us on the grace and truth scale lean kind of one way or the other. That we can be very gracious and very loving and very patient and merciful and compassionate. And sometimes we might actually sacrifice truth because we're so focused on being gracious. And some of us can be so committed to truth and what is right and what is good and what God's word says that we can sacrifice love and grace and compassion on the other side 
side. And so the point is not to say one is more important than the other. Jesus was somehow full of both together perfectly. And whichever side we lean to, where do we need to stretch ourselves on the other other side, the side that we're lacking in? Where do we need to grow in that particular area? So as we're talking about pride, we're wanting to keep that in mind, that we need to be full of grace and full of truth. Pride has been called the universal sin. It goes all the way back to the garden when Adam and Eve were tempted by the enemy. And scripture says about the enemy, the traditional understanding of Satan was that Satan was one of the great archangels of heaven. Uh, Some believe that he was the worship leader of heaven. It's a bit tricky to interpret the symbolism of those passages of scripture, but that Satan was this great, beautiful, glorious archangel who was created to give glory to God. And then there was something in Satan that said, I actually want to sit on that throne. I actually want to be glorified myself. And so Satan rebels against God and God casts Satan out of heaven. And then as Satan comes to the earth and as Adam and Eve, as humanity is created and people make their appearance on the world, God has put a boundary around them where he says you can rule over the earth. You can have everything. You can dominate over everything. Rule over the earth and subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply. Just don't touch that one tree. And when Satan shows up on the scene, that is where the temptation comes. And it's so subtle. Scripture says the serpent was subtle. He was crafty. So he didn't just come and say, like, hey, let's do this. Like, it was very, very subtle. And when the temptation came to Adam and Eve, uh, it was, you know, if you eat from that tree, you'll be like God yourself. You won't need anybody. You won't need anybody. You'll, just, you'll be just like him. And that wasn't true. That they, they were going to become like him in some ways, but they weren't going to be glorious. They weren't going to be eternal. They weren't going to be immortal. Uh, they weren't going to be perfect. Um, but the subtlety of it was just like, hey, if you partake, if you cross that line, you'll, you'll be totally self-sufficient. You'll have everything you need just in yourself. And that was a, a pure lie But the subtlety of that poison worked. It was an appeal and a a promotion of pride. And it's easy in pride to make it all about, um, you know, again, the other people in my life who are, who are so full of themselves and think that they're so great. And, and we're Canadian. Like, we don't do that in the same way as maybe some other countries. And do you see how there's even pride in that statement that I just said? you see how easy it is to, to fall into this? Wherever we think we're superior... Wherever we think we're better than someone else, wherever we're talking down about somebody uh, to their face or behind their back with our friends, wherever we are elevating ourselves, wherever we're pushing others down, wherever we are thinking, I don't need to ask for help. I don't need to to ask anyone to help me. I can do this all by myself. I I don't even want to ask the Lord about it, maybe. I I can just power through this on my own. Pride looks lots of different ways. I had a counselor once who was confronting me in my pride, and I was struggling with some of the things she was saying, because I really don't think I'm, I'm better than anyone. And she said, I think you're confusing pride with arrogance. So arrogance is when you think you're better than everyone. That's, that's a form of pride, to be sure. And that's maybe the most obvious form of pride. Um, my struggle that we were talking about in this counseling session was my inability to ask for help when I needed it was that I can power through, I can figure this out on my own, and I was sort of covering up a little bit of it with, I don't want to bug other people, I can, I can kind of do it on my own. She said, you know, that's a subtle form of pride, because we all need help. Like, none of us can do this on our own. We all need to ask for help. We need to be humble enough to ask for help, and if you're not humble enough to ask for help, you are by definition walking in pride. And I didn't like that very much at the time. 
And it was one of those things like the kind of joke of like, you know, I am a very humble person and I am very proud of that fact. And so I'm saying all that to say pride shows up in lots of different ways. So if you are not sitting here thinking I'm better than other people, then, then don't let yourself off the hook of that. The pride that we walk in, anytime we're focusing entirely on ourselves, anytime we are not focusing on other people. Um, I've, I've loved hearing the stories as we, we navigated the ice storm uh, that hit us this week or just how many of you have stepped up just to be really good neighbors to your neighbors. Like that's a beautiful thing to see in action. The body of Christ just rising up to help, um, to to put others first, to put others' needs first. Um, the opposite of pride, of course, is humility, and, and we are seeking that way. But pride, whatever form it takes, is always sin. So as we look at our text today, verse 35 and 37, James and John, uh, James and John are brothers, the sons of Zebedee, the apostle John, who wrote John's gospel and the letters of John, and then James, who would be executed early on as the church is forming James and John are brothers. They're part of Jesus' inner core circle, even amongst the 12. They come to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. Um, First things first, it is something of a prideful request. I also kind of admire the boldness of it. Right? We've looked at other stories where, where, you know, blind Bartimaeus comes to Jesus. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And, and not that Jesus is a servant, not that he's a genie in a bottle, but he invites us to come boldly before him. He invites us to boldly come before the throne of grace. And so there's a certain boldness to it that I admire, even if it's something of a selfish request. And so as the brothers come to him, uh, you know, they're saying, we want this, these Uh, this very specific thing, you know, when the kingdom is fully established, when you sit on your throne again, we would like to be the ones to sit at your right hand and to sit at your left hand. We want to be there with you. And and so part of that perhaps is, hey, we want to be where the glory is. We want to sit close to the Lord. We want to be there with him. But it seems in the context of the passage that there's some pride in there. And and so uh, in the ancient world at that time, the king sat on their throne. Their most important advisor sat right beside him. And usually one of them was the son who was going to be the next king. And then maybe your most trusted counselor on the other side. So you'd have the prince on the right hand. You'd have your closest advisor at your left hand. And that was so that they could advise you and weigh in on things and be close to all the action. So they're saying, we want the best seats in the house. We want to be right there. We want to be the most important people in the kingdom when it comes. So that's what they're asking for. And, and uh, again, there's a, a bit of nobility to it of, of we want to be there with you, Jesus. And there's also some pride in it saying, hey, we want the best spots. The subject, of, cor- of course, is we think we deserve those spots. We deserve the best spots in the kingdom. We want to be right there with you. And so there is a warning there, and it's a warning that's consistent, I think, throughout Scripture, that we need to be careful whenever that attitude of self-elevation starts to come in. Um, I've had people in my years at the various churches I've worked at, I'll be meeting them for the first time on a Sunday morning. They're visiting the church and they're just checking it out. And they'll be saying like, yes, I have been a wonderful board member at all my previous churches and I would love to be a board member here. And I'll say, okay, well, why don't we start with, what's your name? And then maybe over time, let's get to know each other. And over maybe a few years, we'll see where you're at. And we'll see if it's a good fit. And we'll see if you're committed. And we'll see what your giftings are. And we'll see if that's an appropriate place. And, and that's maybe an obvious example of self-elevation. But, but whenever we are focused primarily on me, because when Jesus walked the earth, he said, I don't seek my own glory. I don't seek my own benefit. He says, I come to serve the Father and to glorify the Father. 
And he said, I come to serve others and be a blessing to others. Jesus' whole entire life in ministry was all about the Father, and it was all about serving others. It was not about himself. And so as we are seeking to be like Jesus, if we really do want to be like Jesus, then we too need to gear our lives towards God in heaven and towards serving others. That's our primary focus. And that's not to say we can't ask for something. That's not to say we don't have needs. I mean, when this works in a perfect world, if I'm living my life to the glory of God and to serve you guys, and you're living your life to the glory of God and serving other people, if we're all focused on serving one another, then everybody's needs should get met. That's, that's how it's supposed to work. But we all kind of got to do it. Because if I do it and none of you do it, then I end up just giving out a lot. And if you do it and no one else does it, then you just end up giving out a lot. And so it requires all of us to engage in that together, where we say it's not primarily about me. It's primarily about the Lord and his glory and walking out obedience to him and then loving and blessing and serving other people along the way. And as we all do that, then we all are encouraged and blessed. And so we want to live our lives in the example of Jesus in that way. Jesus responds, verse 38, you don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. So even Jesus, as he walks the earth, this happens a couple times in the Gospels, it seems there are some things that he doesn't know fully in his humanity, that he is fully God, but there are certain things he would say, I don't know when the end times is coming, only the Father knows that. Uh, So there were certain things that Jesus defers to his Father in heaven, including this. Uh, When Jesus is talking about the cup that he has to drink and the baptism he's going to be baptized with, he's talking about the suffering that is coming. And it's an important thing for us to note in how the kingdom of God works, that the path of struggle is part of the path to greatness in the kingdom because it is the way of Jesus. That is what he did. He carried the cross. He said, anyone who's going to follow after me will have to carry the cross as well. And it's not going to be literally, obviously, for most of us, but there is struggle involved. And so you don't get to just catapult yourself up the ladder in the kingdom of heaven that part of what God is looking for is those who will be faithful and persevere even through the struggle, even through the tough times, even through the difficulties, will you still be faithful. And I I feel bad for James and John in this moment, because they say, we want these great seats of honor. We want the best seats in the house. And Jesus says, okay, you want the best seats. Well, can you drink this cup? Can you suffer this baptism? And they say, yes, we can, thinking that's the way to get the seats. And Jesus says, yes, you will, but I can't promise you the seats. So you are going to struggle. That is part of it. And then there's going to be tough days and and that is going to be what you go through. Those two men specifically would be persecuted and they would have a, a challenging time and yet they would continue just to run after Jesus and glorify him and be faithful and obedient. But as they are are wanting these great seats, Jesus says, yeah, you don't climb the ladder in the kingdom the same way you climb the ladder in the rest of the world. There's a different path here and he is looking for those who will be obedient no matter what. So as this happens, the other 10 hear about it, verse 41, they became indignant with James and John. They don't like that, and there's a couple of reasons, I think, probably for that, that as they are uh, frustrated that not only are James and John elevating themselves, but whenever we're elevating ourselves, we are automatically pushing others below us. 
right? So they're elevating themselves above the others. And, and so they are putting the others down. And that's the other downside. When, whenever we are thinking highly of ourselves, whenever we are elevating ourselves, whenever we are pushing ourselves up, we are inevitably pushing others down. And for those of you who think, well, I, I don't really elevate myself or I'm not sure where I fit in to this whole pride thing, it's the subtlety of uh, just that superiority wherever we think we're better than other people. And, and I think that also shows up in lots of different ways. Whenever we think we're better than other people, and you might think, I've never said that or I've never felt that. Yes, you have. You have. You felt that in lots of little ways. And it can be as simple as, oh man, I'm glad I don't parent the way they parent. I'm glad our marriage is not like that marriage. Christians do it all the time, all the time. I'm glad I take the word more seriously than that person does. And we can go, it goes in both directions, right? Like I, I am glad that I take the word. I am so committed to God's truth, unlike those people over there. And those people over there are saying, I thank God that I am not a legalist like that group over there who just looks at everything so rigidly without love. I'm glad I'm filled with the Spirit, unlike those who are not filled with the Spirit. And then the other side says, I'm glad I'm not flaky like that group over there doing weird Holy Spirit Pentecostal things along the way. I am glad I am in my tradition. I am glad I am not in others' tradition. We talked about a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And says the Pharisee and the tax collector went up to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee starts his prayer saying, thank you, God, that I am not like other people. I do all these good things for you. I am being faithful. I am being obedient. Thank you, God, that I am not like them. And the tax collector, who was legitimately in sin, wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven and just said, Lord, have mercy on me, sinner that I am. And Jesus said it was the tax collector who had their sins forgiven that day because they acknowledged that they needed their sins forgiven. And the other Pharisee was just very confident in all the good stuff that he was doing. Thank you, God, that I am not like other men. So anytime we are raising ourselves up and thinking we're superior, we're in danger of doing that same thing. Even if you've never said the phrase, thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, it's that attitude. It's the attitude of I am better. It is the attitude of they are worse. It's the attitude when we are elevating ourselves and looking down on somebody else. I was talking to a friend of mine a few years ago. She went to another church, and she was kind of struggling with her church. And she said, you know, it's a very uh, kind of black and white legalistic church. And the pastor on Sundays will talk about how we have the truth, and we're one of the only churches that has the truth. And all the other churches in town don't have the truth as much as we do. And she said, when the friends of mine, when everybody kind of gets together, that's what they do is they sit around and they talk about, wow, aren't you happy that we have the truth at our church? And all these other churches are just off the rails. And she says, they just all kind of sit around and they judge people and they kind of pat themselves on the back for how committed to the truth they are. And I got really angry when I heard that story. And I was kind of grumbling about it throughout the week. And I was just like, oh, they think they're better than us. They think they're better than any church that isn't them. They think they're better than all the other churches in their town. And, and they just sit around and they, you know, they talk about how great they are and how they have the truth and, and the rest of us don't have the truth. And they just sit around judging us and thinking they're better than everyone else. Thank God I'm not like them. And then I went, wow, that happened fast. But you see how it can, right? Like just, again, whether it's looking at another marriage or another set of parents or, or another church or another denomination or another Christian of a different persuasion or, or whatever the case may be, how easy it is, even if you're not saying the words, to take on that attitude of I'm glad I'm not like them. 
And every time we're talking in the language of, I'm glad I'm not like them, we are forgetting that that is an image bearer of the Most High God who was crafted together in their mother's womb just like you, who Jesus died for just like he died for you, who Jesus loves just like he loves you. And listen, they may be in error. There, there may be something there that's legitimate. But the problem is when I'm looking down on somebody else, it's really, really hard to love them well. And loving people well is what Jesus said the greatest commandment for us was to love God and to love others. And if you go like, oh, I don't really struggle with the superiority thing, I have one word for you, COVID. And wherever you landed on COVID, on the various things, I'm not here to start that war again, but wherever you landed on the different topics, I haven't met a single person yet who didn't spend some time in those couple of years looking down on the people who are on the other side of the issue and getting together with like-minded people and going, oh, I'm glad we're not like them on the other side of the issue. I'm glad I'm not as cowardly. I'm glad I'm not as selfish. I'm glad I'm not as ignorant. I'm glad I'm not as deceived or whatever we said, right? Like it's so easy, the subtlety of the serpent's poison, the subtlety of that. But the minute you start looking at people that way, the minute you start going, I'm up here and you're down here, right? I am, I am smart and you are ignorant. I am free and you are deceived. I am committed to the word and you are off the rails. Like whatever you start doing, that, you are not loving that person well. You've lost some of that humanity. You've lost the fact that we are all sinners in need of saving. That the same God created us all, the same God loves us all, the same God died for us all, the same God offers the gift of salvation to all of us equally. And even if you're not in the same sin as those other people, you've got your own. And so, Lord, forgive us for when we take on that attitude of, I am thankful that I am not like them. When we lose that sense of of connection to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, especially. I write a column uh, for a, a website called Pathios, which is a religion website. And so I have a weekly column uh, just talking about sort of Jesus-y Anabaptist things. And as part of the deal, you have to have social media presence. And so you have to have a site on the different things. And so I had a Facebook site for it. I had an Instagram site for it. And then they had said, like, we really want you to have a Twitter uh, site for it, a Twitter feed. And I've never done Twitter ever because it's so stupid. But... <laughs> They said, we really would like you to do this. And so I was like, all right. So for the first time ever, you know, I'm way late to the party. For the first time ever, uh, I got a Twitter feed. Here's what I've discovered in the last month of having a Twitter feed. It is the worst place on earth. It is the worst place on earth. It's all of the worst parts of humanity on full display and just people ripping each other to shreds, Christians ripping each other to shreds. And it's just, there's a viciousness to it that I go like, ah, like Instagram doesn't tend to get that vicious. Facebook can, but this feels worse to me. And there's just something about it. And it's just, it's this attitude. It's just the, we have the truth and you don't. And you go like, okay, but both brothers in Christ, right? We're all going to spend eternity together. And as they're fighting about things, whatever the issue, I saw a fight unfold over the role of women in church ministry and whether women should preach or not. And they were fighting about it. And here's what I think a biblically loving, reasonable way to have that discussion is. Hey, you and I might disagree on this issue, but we're all going to heaven one day. Then we'll find out for sure who's right. And in the meantime, let's lovingly agree to disagree because the things that unite us are so much greater than these issues which are more challenging to wrestle through biblically. And instead what happens is, oh, so you think a woman can preach? Well, I'm sorry you're so deceived and you hate God's word. 
And then the other side fires back. Oh, you don't think a woman can preach. Well, I'm sorry, you're so sexist and deceived and you hate God's word. And then someone tried to throw in a, hey, you know what, guys? In heaven, we'll figure out who's right, so why aren't we gracious in between? And then one of the sides will say, like, well, I don't know that the other side's going to be in heaven, to tell you the truth. And they're just off to the races. It's the worst place on earth. And man, if there was ever a picture of, like, hey, we're all in sinners need a saving, go spend half an hour on Twitter. Let your theology there be reinforced as truth. And it's all that superiority, right? I am right. I have the truth. And because you don't, it's okay for me to look down on you. It's okay for me to step on you. It's okay for me. And none of those things are okay. None of those things are okay. If Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God and to love others, then to fail to love others well is sin by definition. And pride and superiority play into that so well. So this fight now breaks out in our story. Back to our text. And in verse 42, it says, Jesus called them together. And so there is sin going on. Jesus acknowledges it. There's an argument breaking out. Jesus doesn't come with wrath and fire and brimstone, but he has to correct this. He has to speak truth to where the sin is there. He called them together. He says, no, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. So when he says the Gentiles, he's meaning the people who don't know the Lord. Just anyone who doesn't know God. Um, some interpretations would say the pagans, just those who are outside of the knowledge of God at this point. So in the way the world generally works, Jesus says, there is a very authoritative view of things. Some people are higher up the ladder than others. Some are up here and some are down here. And some are there and they lord it over others and they crack the whip of authority and that is the way that the world works. And that is the way that our world works. It really is no different. Uh, that is what happens. That we live in kind of a, a pyramid, top-down, you know, CEO model sort of leadership and, and that's the way things work. And yet here Jesus couldn't be more crystal clear in saying that's not the way it's supposed to work for citizens of the kingdom. For citizens of the kingdom, we have a king on the throne, right? That's the top of the pyramid. Jesus is the top of the pyramid. But Jesus says, for you, as you live in this world, that's not the way you're supposed to engage with one another. And while there are leaders in the kingdom and God sets leadership structures, it's not supposed to look the way it does in the rest of the world. It's not supposed to be a top-down, authoritative, I'm up here and you're down here. Jesus, as he so often does, turns the entire thing upside down. Could not be more clear in this passage. Jesus says the way the world works is that someone's at the top and they order around the people who are below them. Someone's at the top and they're higher, they're better, they're more important. Jesus says, not so with you. Not so in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, there is one head, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's at the top. Uh, but it's so ingrained in us. And I, I've done lots of uh, conferences and courses on leadership. I've, I've gone to the different conventions that talk about leadership, read so many books on leadership. And so many of them miss this, what I think is such a key, important part of what Jesus teaches. And so leadership conferences and things tend to talk a lot about things like, well, here's how you make a plan, and here's how you have a vision, and here's how you organize your organization and here's the structure you should be using. There's a place for all of that, for sure, but that tends to be all that it focuses on. I've never been to a Christian leadership conference that says, here's how to be a better slave to the people that you're serving, which is exactly what Jesus tells us to do here. 
And it tends to follow those worldly pictures of you're the CEO and chief visionary, and so your job is to to do that, and you are to lead in that way. And one of the things I really love the Anabaptists and I love about Meadowbrook is that even though I'm the lead pastor, I actually have remarkably little power. (laughs) We do everything as a team here. Everything happens with our staff team, with our board team, with our staff and board coming together. We discern things together. The decisions that we make are our decisions. They're not my decisions. We figure that out together. I say this regularly because I think it's important. I don't know that people always believe me. I get shot down regularly on this leadership team, as we all do. Just you bring an idea, you wrestle it through. Sometimes it's a God idea, sometimes it's not. We don't know until we wrestle through it together. And regularly enough, I come and say, hey, why don't we do this? And the rest of the team feels like no, and then we don't do that thing. And we find a better way, and we find God's way, and we land on it through the prayer and discernment and discussion. Philippians 2.3 tells us this, in humility, value others above yourselves. Some versions say, consider others better than yourselves. The path of humility, which is the opposite of pride. It's the opposite of arrogance. It's the opposite of superiority. Consider others better. I, I try my best in every conversation I walk into to think that this person has something to teach me. This person has something I need to learn from them. I might not agree with them. We might not be on the same page. We might not end up on the same page. Nonetheless, there is something for me to learn here. Jesus says in verse 43 of our text, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And so to to get the most important seats, whatever that looks like in the kingdom, I don't quite understand how that's all going to work out. But to be considered great in God's eyes, you become a servant and a slave. You don't elevate yourself. You don't crack the whip of authority. You don't go from a top-down model. You don't think you're better than anybody. You become a servant and you become a slave. Henry Nouwen was a Catholic priest at the end of the 20th century. He said this, The society in which we live suggests in countless ways that the way to go is up. Making it to the top, entering the limelight, breaking the record, that's what draws attention, gets us on the front page of the newspaper, and offers us the rewards of money and fame. The way of Jesus is radically different. It is the way not of upward mobility, but of downward mobility. It is going to the bottom, staying behind the sets, and choosing the last place. Henry Nouwen, a Catholic priest, as I said, brilliant man, brilliant. And he was on uh, the teaching staff of Notre Dame, a a very famous uh, Bible college in the States seminary. He was a professor there. He was a world-renowned speaker. He wrote books that became bestsellers. He traveled all over the world. Um, Yale came along, Yale Divinity School, one of the best divinity schools on earth. And they offered him a job, and, and he said, he asked for, you know, this salary and this, you know, tenure and all these things, and they wanted him so badly, they gave him everything he asked for. And so he's sitting in this place of fame and money and, uh, and all these wonderful things. And along the way, he begins to feel like, I don't think this is the way of Jesus. I, I don't. And he begins to wrestle his way through to this idea that by worldly standards, he's doing fantastic. Right? He is one of the most respected uh, teachers in the world and, and renowned by both the scholars and the, the churches alike and, and had this ability to write books that were just beautifully deep and rich and yet super easy to understand and, and just renowned and, and all the money and fame and, and esteem that goes with all of that. And then he began to feel convicted of the Lord. This is not the way of Jesus. And so he abandoned all of it. He moved to Toronto to an assisted living facility for people with special needs, kind of like Christian Horizons that we have here uh, called L'Arche. 
And he just moved into that home and became the caretaker of a young disabled man named Adam and lived the rest of his life there, taking care of Adam in just obscurity and, and without money, without fame, without anything. And said, I think that's where Jesus would want me to be. Not getting the accolades of this world, but serving someone who just needs to be loved and supportive. And, and he would write on that too and just his wonderful, beautiful relationship with Adam and just everything that God taught him and showed him through that. But he, he didn't just teach this now and he lived it. He lived it out. It took him a while to wrestle his way through to it, but he found his way there. And so, you know, I, I think it's not that money in itself is bad, or it's not, I mean, some people are going to be well-known, and, and that's the way that goes. Um, but it's just, what's the attitude surrounding it, right? Are we looking for the applause? Are we looking for the station? Are we looking, are we really wanting to climb that ladder for our own sake? Or are we serving the Lord? Are we serving others? And I think for some of us, as we serve the Lord and serve others, those doors might open, and, and that might happen. But are we serving the Lord and serving others the way Jesus did? Are we saying, okay, I don't need the success of this world. The way of the kingdom is different, and I'm going to follow in the way of the kingdom. And so as Jesus is teaching his apostles, um, it's interesting when Jesus dies and returns to heaven, uh, when he is resurrected and returns to heaven, there's no lead pastor in the early church. There's no chief apostle. Uh, there's no one person who's the point person. They do it all together. And Jesus says, in the kingdom, my leaders lead differently. They lead as servants and they lead as slaves. And so if you're in leadership in a church position in the church, you're going to lead as a servant. And if you're going to be a husband leading in the home, you're going to lead as a servant. It's not a place for husbands to say, hey, woman, I'm in charge. Know your place. That is not the way of the kingdom of God. If you're the husband and the father in your home, you are the servant and the slave to your family. That is leading the way Jesus calls you to lead. doesn't mean you don't take the lead, but it means you lead from an attitude of servanthood. That's your main job is to serve your family. In your workplace, it can apply beyond, but we are leading and, and walking this out differently wherever we are leading and walking this out in our lives. Jesus wraps up with a kicker that's really hard to argue with. Verse 45, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus, who had every right to come and be served as the Son of Man, Jesus, who had every right to come and live a life of being served, lays all of that aside and lives out instead a life of service towards others. Jesus comes and lives a life that is all about honoring the Father and all about serving other people. Jesus was actually superior, right? By, by definition, being Jesus, he was higher than everybody else. He was more righteous. He did have more figured out in his theology. Like, he was better in every way and yet did not walk around saying, hey, everybody, I'm better in every way. He lives a life completely different. He washes feet he meets people graciously. Even when people are in error, he meets them with compassion. Even when people are in sin, he meets them with love. He meets them where they're at. He doesn't want them to stay where they're at, but he meets them there. And he doesn't say, hey, everybody, look at me, and where's my attention, and where's my accolades? He says, I live my life to glorify the Father. I live my life to bless and serve other people. He washes feet. He carries his cross. He doesn't just teach us this. He lives this out for us. Philippians chapter 2 says this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus 
who being in very nature God, even though he was God himself, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, didn't use his godness to make his own life better or glorify himself. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Scripture says, if you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. If you humble yourself, you will be exalted. Either way, you're going to be both humbled and exalted. It's just a matter of how pleasant is that journey going to be for you. You can humble yourself and let God lift you up. So humble yourself, take last place, serve others, put others first, and trust that either in this life or in eternity, God will exalt you. Or you can exalt yourself now and let life consequence, however God uses things, to knock you down. Either way, you will be both humbled and exalted. The question is, what order is that going to happen in and how nice is that journey going to be for you? Come on up, worship team, as we get ready to close today. We had this kind of stunning storm this week that we all lived through here. Uh, most of the province didn't really get it. It seems to have been really isolated into Leamington, Kingsville, Amherstburg in that area. And so on Wednesday, our power went out uh, kind of early in the storm where we live in Leamington. We lost power for about eight hours. Uh, kind of as we were getting ready for bed. So I stayed up late because I was listening for the sump pump. <laughs> so we had one bad experience years ago where the power went out in the middle of a downpour and I was bailing out the well by hand for like three hours in the heat. So always a little nervous about sump pumps. And so it was all okay in our house and, uh, and eventually the power came back on and in about eight hours, everything was all right. So I got up the next morning and I went out for my walk. It was just before five in the morning. And so still dark out, but the power had come on, the street lights were shining, and the world was beautiful to see, right? To look at it, it was beautiful, it looked like this. Just all the trees just had this little thin dusting. It looked like someone had just hand-painted them, like just had just dusted them. They were stunning and the light was shining through, it was crystallized, like it was beautiful. And then I was out on my walk, and the whole time, all over, you can just hear, crack, smash. And I went, oh, this is not as beautifully, delicately innocent as it looks. And I've heard some of your stories where you've lost trees and you've lost power and you've lost, you know, something hit your house. And, and so for something that looked so innocent and so delicate, uh, there was a lot more to it. It was a lot more dangerous than it appeared. It looked innocent enough, but it was much more dangerous than it appeared. That's what pride is for us. It's so subtle, so simple. We don't even notice we're doing it, I think, most of the time. And it doesn't look like that big a deal. But anytime I'm elevating myself, anytime I'm thinking I'm better than others, anytime I'm, I'm dishonoring someone else by putting them down, anytime I think that I'm doing great, anytime that I, I'm mad because it's not enough about me, anytime I'm not asking for help, whatever many forms pride can look like, doesn't look like that big a deal. But when God said that the, the greatest commandment was to love him and love others, when I start to go into those attitudes, I stop loving him well and I stop loving others well. It is sin. It is. And Jesus, as always, points out our sin and then calls us to a better way. 
So instead of pride, we're choosing humility, right? We're not trying to climb that ladder. We're, we're going to humble ourselves. God will exalt us in due time if he knows that that's the right thing to do. But in the meantime, we're going to serve and we're going to put others first. We're going to choose last place. We'll choose the worst seat at the banquet. If God wants to do more than that, he can. And when we catch ourselves, when we catch one another in those attitudes of like, well, thank God I'm not like that, we're going to notice that. We're going to remember that even if there is a problem with that other person or with that other side, there may be a problem there that's legit. But we're going to lose that attitude. And remember, that is an image bearer of God, created in the image of God, knit together in their mother's wombs by the hands of God. And and just a, a sinner in need of saving, just like the rest of us. We're not better than them. Even if we have different issues, we've all got something that we're working through. So we're choosing the way of humility because humility is the better way to go. Here at Meadowbrook, we're here to help you take your next steps with Jesus. And we focus on that upwardly, inwardly, and outwardly. So, So just some things for you to think about, reflect on, pray into over this next week as we think about what are your next steps. So next steps upwardly in your relationship with Jesus, just to do some some soul searching this week. Where is pride at work in you? Where do you see that elevation? Where do you see that superiority? Where do you see that, thank God I'm not like them. Thank God my marriage isn't like them. Thank God my parenting isn't like theirs. Where do you see that attitude where you're up here and others are down there and in so doing you're dishonoring a fellow image bearer of Jesus Christ where you are not loving them well in that moment? And and where do you need to spend some time with the Lord confessing? Inwardly, in terms of your next steps, where can you actively take a step towards humility this week? And maybe it's as simple as offering to help somebody, right? Putting someone else's needs before. Again, if you look around, there's a lot of tree branches that need to get carved up this week. There's a lot of yards that need cleaning up. Where can we take a step of humility to help somebody, to put someone else first, to be a blessing to somebody else? Um, and, and that ties into the outwardly as well. Of just as we follow the example of Jesus, who needs someone, where is there someone in our life whose feet need to be washed this week? Literally, maybe, but, but probably more likely symbolically, but just where is there somebody who you can go and serve? Because when we are serving someone else, we are loving them well. When we are serving someone else, we are blessing them well. We are like Jesus in those moments. Would you stand to your feet with me, please, as we get ready to close off with worship and with prayer?